Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Glenn Bolas on the topic Divinity in the Dock. This August 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Glenn Bolas is a Catholic apologist and convert from the Baptist Church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his Messiah. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay. A few years ago, I was living and studying in France, and one day, in my apartment amidst my books, I received a knock on the door. Opening it, I found two women, an older one and a younger one, who wanted to talk to me. They claimed to be les témoins de Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, now curiously enough, this was my first encounter with the Watchtower. Uh, for some reason, they don't come by my house here in Australia, I'm not quite sure why but there it is. So this was the first time I'd had any contact with them. And uh, so curious and rather intrigued, I invited them in, and we got out our Bibles and started to talk. Now, a funny thing can happen when you're actually talking to people with whose opinions you vehemently disagree, but with whom you've never actually had to argue in the flesh. You suddenly discover that they're not idiots and that they have perfectly good reasons for believing what they believe, and some of those reasons are things that you've never thought of before. Being a good Protestant at the time, I naturally assumed that these witnesses would be twisting and denying and avoiding scripture all over the place, and all I would have to do to refute them would be simply read what was there in the Bible to them and make their errors plain. It turned out they had read the Bible pretty closely already. In fact, they even had their own translation of it, and had simply drawn their own conclusions. And they were pretty keen for me to accept those conclusions as well. And although I never did actually counter any of their arguments or proof texts particularly well, I never did. There was just something about Christ that didn't make sense if he was anything less than God. Now, I've been asked to speak to you tonight on the divinity of our Lord, and this is not just some arbitrary addition to our faith, just one doctrine among many, or some quirky belief that could be dropped with little consequence to our daily lives as Christians. In fact, it's among the most vital doctrines of our faith. 
And there was a time when the subject was very much on topic. In fact, people spoke of little else. It was a cause for pub songs, for riots in the street, and for much politicking. Indeed, the denial of our Lord's Godhead was the occasion for what was arguably the Catholic Church's darkest and most desperate hour since Good Friday. For weeks, during the year 357, the entire church capitulated and accepted that Christ was not God. Even the greatest living saint at the time, Osius of Cordoba, who was the last man alive to have experienced the great persecution under the Roman emperors and to have remained faithful, even he, tortured at 101 years old, was broken and signed a heretical creed. In that year of 357, only two bishops in the whole world still stood firm for the divinity of Christ. One was the great Saint Athanasius, who at that time was a fugitive in exile, hiding in the desert of Egypt. The other was Pope Liberius, who was under house arrest in Sirmium in modern Serbia. Now, thank God those dark weeks are a distant memory. And your average Catholic, though he may have heard rumours of something called the Arian heresy, probably has no idea that it ever got quite that bad. But still, even in our own day, there remain echoes, minor spiritual descendants of the Arians, uh, though without anything approaching their power and influence. There are, of course, several kingdom halls of Jehovah's Witnesses here in Sydney. And the implicit denial of our Lord's common substance, his homoousian with the Father, can also be found in other places which are not quite so obvious. And uh, we'll be looking at those a bit shortly. Now the fact is, to a certain extent, one can sympathise with the Arians and with the JWs. In reading the Gospels, it is not at first obvious, to us at least, that Jesus is God. He seems like any other human being. He gets tired. He weeps. He shows disturbing bouts of ignorance, like when a woman is healed after touching him and he asks, who touched me? In fact, he admits ignorance on more than one occasion, such as when he claims that the Father knows when the day of the Lord will come, but he doesn't. He goes away to pray. <coughs> if he were God, did he then pray to himself? If Jesus were God, why would he even need to pray? He admits the Father is greater than I. And most scandalously of all, on the cross he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How could God abandon himself? And the insuperable question is, if he were God, why didn't he ever just come out and say so? Many at this point, of course, would turn to Matthew 16, where our Lord asks the apostles, Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Aha, we think, there's your proof. But Christ means anointed one, or Messiah, same term we had in the psalm. And there's not as much as we might think in Old Testament prophecy suggesting that the Messiah would be God incarnate. <coughs> the ideas don't automatically go together. Nor does Son of the living God automatically mean God either. Others have also been called sons of God. And a son is presumably a distinct entity from his father. They can't be the same person. At first glance then, taking a look at what we know about our Lord, it makes absolutely no sense to regard him as God. The Arians and the Jehovah's Witnesses appear to have a pretty strong case. Among them, and even among many secularists, 
The answer to the question, when did people start thinking Jesus was God, is not the first century, but the fourth. But it's not as easy as that. Like the experiments physicists have done with light, where they can't agree whether it's a wave or a particle, because one experiment says one, and one experiment says another. So they have to accept that paradoxically and seeming inconsistently, it's actually both. In the same way, in the Gospels we have two streams of data, seemingly mutually contradictory, but both most definitely there. Granted, we do see all the things we've already said, things which make absolutely no sense if Jesus is God. That's one stream of data. And for the Jews of this period, the dichotomy was even more pronounced. Because they knew about God. They hadn't forgotten the plagues of Egypt or the Red Sea when they saw the bodies of the Egyptians wash up on the shore. They hadn't forgotten the thunder and lightning on Sinai. They hadn't forgotten the way Moses' face after he spoke with God was so luminous you couldn't look at it directly. They hadn't forgotten the dedication of Solomon's temple when the cloud of God's glory descended into the Holy of Holies and fire fell from heaven directly onto the altar and consumed the sacrifice. And they lived with the possibility every Yom Kippur that the high priest might not return from the sanctuary alive and that they might have to pull him back out with the rope tied round his waist because he had on his soul some secret sin he hadn't told anybody about. The Jews knew God better than anybody. He was no Zeus who would descend to earth looking like a man so as to fornicate with women. God was magnificent, numinous, holy, and his holiness could kill you if you got too close. But the Jews of this period were also sensitive to many things which run by us unnoticed. And this brings us to that second stream of data I mentioned. Now, there are many good secularists who opine that Jesus was just a good moral teacher who wanted everyone to love one another and that we should all leave the theology of later centuries and go back to that beautiful teaching of his in the Sermon on the Mount. Well, the problem for that view is that in the Sermon on the Mount, we find most starkly evidence that Jesus is, in fact, God. For a good deal of the Sermon on the Mount consists in Christ saying, you have heard that it was written, but I say to you. So, for example, you have heard that it was written, do not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. Now, to us, this is arresting moral counsel, but it doesn't have many theological repercussions. To the Jews, however, this is huge. Because this is the Torah. This is the foundation of the Torah, the Ten Commandments. We're talking about the law given by God to Moses on Sinai. Given by God, note. Nobody gets to tamper with that. You can't just change stuff in it. You are subject to it, not the other way round. But Jesus is changing it. He's taking the commandments and broadening their scope further than God had already done. And he's doing so without any claim to inspiration from God, or a prophetic word, or anything like that. He just does it. And he does it simply on his own authority, and without any apology. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you, this is a claim to Godhood. 
Our Lord does this on other occasions as well. Pope Benedict has a fascinating passage in his book Jesus of Nazareth in which he engages in dialogue with the work of a Jewish rabbinical scholar who wrote a book on the Gospels. His name's uh, Rabbi Neusner. The Holy Father zeroes in on Rabbi Neusner's treatment of Jesus' words on the Sabbath. And fascinatingly, where we simply see Christ denouncing legalism and excessive rigorism on the part of the Pharisees, Rabbi Neusner sees an unequivocal assumption of divine prerogatives on the part of our Lord. By claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, Christ puts himself in the position of Torah giver, and therefore of God. Likewise, on more than one occasion, Jesus claims to forgive sins. Of particular interest is the occasion with the crippled man lowered through the roof. And this event is worth taking a closer look at, so we will. Now, in the Jewish mindset, suffering always happens because of sin. The two go together. And this is quite true, that uh, connection goes back to Genesis. It took the passion to show us that God can turn even suffering and misfortune to a good end. So, when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven to the crippled man who has just come through the roof, not only is it totally scandalous and blasphemous, as far as any devout Jew is concerned, but the fact that the man is still crippled proves its falsity. If his sins were forgiven, his suffering would be gone too. But it isn't, so they aren't. Hence our Lord's next question. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your mat and walk? The question has more to it than is immediately apparent. Of course, it is technically easier to say your sins are forgiven. How could anybody disprove it? Saying take up your mat and walk is harder because if the crippled man doesn't take up his mat and walk, you look like an idiot. That command needs observable results, but the other one doesn't. On the other hand, though, in another sense, saying take up your mat and walk is easier. Lots of prophets have done miracles of healing. Another would be amazing, but not unprecedented. Saying your sins are forgiven, however, is of another order entirely. Because there is a way to have sins forgiven. And that is by offering a sin offering at the temple in Jerusalem. And there, it is the priest who says, your sins are forgiven. Not because he has forgiven them himself, but because he has judged the sacrifice to have been done properly. And can say authoritatively that God has therefore forgiven you. But not even a priest could say those words if no sacrifice had been offered. And not even a priest would assume the power of forgiveness itself simply on his own say-so. This is another claim to divinity, because our Lord is claiming to be able to forgive sins himself, and totally independently of the divinely commanded sacrificial system of the Torah. But of course he hasn't backed it up yet at this point. So the Pharisees, in particular, think it an empty claim. But Christ holds them to it. He says, So that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, I say to you, to the crippled man, Arise, take up your bed, and walk. And of course the crippled man does. Here we have more than just a claim. We have a demonstration. Everyone present, and the Pharisees especially, who know the Torah back to front, realize what's going on and what's just happened before their eyes. Not only has our Lord claimed to be able to forgive sins on his own say-so, and independently of any sacrifice, by healing the man of his disability, 
he has demonstrated to the Jewish mind that those are no empty words, that the claim has a solid basis in reality. But even if we're not fully aware of all the implications of our Lord's words and deeds to his Jewish audience, it's even enough to look clearly at Christ in comparison with other great religious leaders and founders. If you line up all the great religious founders and movers and shakers throughout history, there's one dazzlingly stark difference between all of them and Christ. All of them pointed away to something external to themselves, either to God or gods or to a teaching or a philosophy or a methodology or a way of life. If they pointed to themselves, it was invariably as the discoverer or at most the exemplar of the kind of thing they were advocating or the god or gods they were trying to get people to worship. Zoroaster taught a particular way of relating to God and particular ideas about what the deity was like. Muhammad did the same, as did Moses. Buddha promoted a philosophy. Socrates taught a methodology, a way of thinking about things. Our Lord also, of course, had much to say about how to live life and what God was like. But mixed in with this are some of the most astonishingly arrogant and self-absorbed statements to have come from anyone ever. I and the Father are one. I am the vine, you are the branches. All judgment is with the Son. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all his angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them as the sheep from the goats. You believe in the Father, believe also in me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Sell all you have to the poor and come follow me. Familiarity has perhaps dulled the impact of these words, but th these are some phenomenal statements. If one's butcher or the fellow at the petrol station started saying stuff like this, we'd think they'd gone balmy. If the PM started saying things like this, we'd think he was having delusions of grandeur and was no longer fit for office. If a priest started spouting this kind of stuff, we'd expect a fairly swift bull of excommunication. Christ is not pointing to his teaching or to a special insight, not a way of life or thought. It's all about him. Jesus isn't pointing to anything or anyone beyond himself. He's pointing squarely at himself. Now, the only other people who actually, in our experience, talk like that tend to be minor cult leaders, like Jim Jones and people like that. But people like that tend to be slightly unhinged and don't give coincidentally good moral teaching as well, the kind of teaching that people admire even when they're not adherents of that person's group. You don't find great luminaries and thinkers who are challenged by and quote extensively from Montanus the Phrygian or James Naylor or David Koresh. You do, however, find people like Gandhi doing that to Christ. All of this constitutes a second stream of data, as valid as the first we looked at and inextricable from it, about Jesus Christ. If we take the Gospel account seriously, and if we're responsible historians, much less Christians, then we must. Then we have to accept both streams of data as telling us about Christ, telling us who he is. Like the scientists with their experiments with light, we can't just discount a whole host of data because it seems to contradict other data. 
Both are clearly the case. What we have to do is work out how both can be true. How do you reconcile them? This is what the Arian and the Jehovah's Witness refuses to do. But this, in fact, is what the apostles and their successors did. What does it all mean? Who is this man? Thomas said it after the resurrection, my Lord and my God. But how can that be true? How can Jesus act as God and also act as man? How is it possible for both of those to be true? From Easter on, the church applied its mind to that question. Christ had promised that the Holy Spirit would guide the church's thinking and guarantee its accuracy. But it still, of course, had to do the hard intellectual work. Three centuries later, it came up with something approaching an answer. And that answer was the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, it's very important for us to understand that the doctrine of the Trinity isn't and wasn't some arbitrary doctrine imposed on the faith, some kind of unnecessary complicating of something which was at heart very simple. I suspect most of us, most of the time, simply accept the basic form of the doctrine on faith and don't inquire into it any further than we have to, uh, regarding it as kind of optional extra theologically for people who are interested in that kind of thing. But this is to misunderstand why we have the doctrine in the first place. Karl Barth, the great German Protestant theologian, who my, um, my old uh, chaplain in the EU used to speak of Karl Barth as, when he's right, he's spectacularly right, but when he's wrong, he's spectacularly wrong. He's never just down the middle. Um, Karl Barth says in his Church Dogmatic something quite crucial about this. He says, the theological trinity is identical to the economic trinity. Now, after hearing that, you're probably as baffled as I was the first time I heard it. What on earth does that mean? Well, economic here means the economy of salvation. In other words, salvation history. What he's saying is that we discover the trinity not by sitting down and thinking about the nature of God and his attributes, but by looking at salvation history and how God has revealed himself to us in time. Modern Jews don't believe in the Trinity, not because they haven't applied enough thought to who God is and what he's like, but because they don't believe Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, both God and man at the same time. The same goes for the Muslims. It's not a question of theologizing. We believe in the Trinity because this is the God that has revealed himself to us. The whole story of scripture is the story of our relationship with God, the relationship between humanity and God, and getting to know him. And the Trinity is what God has revealed, how God has revealed himself to us within the context of that relationship. So to understand the Trinity, we, we seem to think, ah, it's just a bit of theology, it's doctrines, it's, you know, this kind of abstractions. But it's not. It's coming out of that lived relationship. Okay? The church putting its mind to the God who has revealed himself to us, who has lived and is living in relationship to us. That's where the Trinity comes from. And that's why it's important. Our, the our theology is based on events, not on abstractions. Having been thunderstruck by the person of Christ, 
by watching him, getting to know him, seeking to get their heads around what it was that was happening during his ministry and in his passion and resurrection and ascension, the apostles and the church built on them were sent really dazed. It's like falling in love for the first time. Like, what happened? Who was that? And in order to be true to all the data, the church came up with the doctrine of the Trinity and with the astounding but undeniable conclusion that God the Son took on flesh and became one with us, true God and true man of one being with the Father. And that that is who Jesus Christ is. Now, it may be asked one way or the other, does it really matter? There do exist and have existed Christians who do not accept the full divinity of our Lord, and they seem to get on well enough. How much difference does it really make practically? Well, in fact, it makes all the difference in the world. The entire faith rests on who Jesus Christ is. To demonstrate, let us take the varying alternatives. Firstly, one we haven't really looked at tonight, but it's worth a mention nonetheless. Let us assume, for argument's sake, that Jesus was not really human, that he only seemed human. There have been various groups who have held something like that idea uh, throughout the history of the church. Now, if that is true, our salvation is in mortal danger because it is precisely by becoming a descendant of Adam, a member of the human race, with genetic information passed on from his mother to him and an ancestry linking him with every other human being who has ever lived, including us, it is precisely and only by doing that that he can redeem in his own flesh the rest of the human race, again, including us. If Christ is not fully human, then it is not humans he is redeeming. If it isn't humans he is redeeming, then we are lost, and our salvation is a fantasy. The fathers in the early centuries had a saying. They used to say, that which was not assumed cannot be redeemed. In other words, only to the extent that Christ was human could he redeem humanity. Now, there were several ideas and several movements in the early centuries which wanted to restrict Christ's humanity so as to protect his divinity. To say that he didn't have a human soul, but that God the Son was substituted for a human soul instead. So the place that, uh, that a human soul occupies was occupied by his divinity. Or that Christ didn't have a human will, but only a divine will. None of those ideas is adequate, and each of them injures the message of salvation in its vitals. The other possibility, then, with which we've been dealing, Christ was not God, but merely a man, or, as the Arians and Jehovah's Witnesses have believed, a semi-divine or angelic being. But look what this implies. If it was someone else who was made man for us, someone else who died for our sins, then it wasn't God. That means God hasn't saved us. God hasn't suffered and bled for us. God hasn't redeemed us. Someone else has. That's the clear implication of Arian and Jehovah's Witness belief. God has remained on the sidelines. It's been somebody else in the arena. Not only does that concept have clear theological problems, since it can be argued that the redemption requires an infinite satisfaction for sin, which of course only God could make. Not only that, but it has repercussions for the character of God. 
If Christ isn't God, but is someone else instead, then God isn't the kind of God who is willing and, uh, to suffer and die for the world. Worse, he's the kind of God to cause one of his creatures to suffer and die for the world. How we see God and how we relate to him must change if this is what he's like. Those are the things at stake in this doctrine. If Christ isn't God, then it isn't God who saves us. If Christ isn't man, then it isn't us that he saves. Now, I said at the beginning that a denial or even the emphasis on our Lord's divinity has other repercussions as well. Not just for those Christians who explicitly deny it and accept something else, but for all of us. It's important for us to not simply accept this doctrine intellectually. Again, as one doctrine among many, as something that we say in the creed every Sunday. But to know it in our bones, have it inform our way of seeing everything else. And there are consequences if we don't do that. I'd like to give an example of one. This is one possible thing that has um, been floating around for a while, actually. Uh, some of you might have heard of it. Um, basically, a deep skepticism about the justice of the atonement. The form it takes is that um, the idea that God sent his son to bear the sins of the world to take the wrath that sin justly deserved, or to take the punishment of sin, is characterized as divine child abuse. And thus, Orthodox Christianity as a barbaric religion with a sadistic God. Thus, for example, you find feminists, uh, such as, uh, to name one, Rita Nakashima Brock, uh, claiming that a belief in the atonement results in a high in higher incidence of actual child abuse in Christian families for this reason. Some of you may recall as well, uh, I think it was two Easter's ago, uh, there was a priest who, whose name eludes me for the moment, unfortunately, um, who uh, made some waves by giving a radio interview uh, in which he rejected the atonement precisely because of this idea. The atonement is divine child abuse. It's an objection to the heart of Christian faith which is, I think, gaining wider currency. I've heard it from a few quarters, and some of you may have as, as well. And even among Christians, because the charge does have some resonance for us. So, to take another example, uh, this time from a Christian, Steve Chalk, uh, from England, uh, famous for his prominence in the emerging church movement, uh, has publicly rejected the orthodox uh, doctrine of the atonement on these grounds, and seems to be looking these days for an alternative. What all of these people have in common, though, is that whether or not they would subscribe to the doctrine of the Trinity as something they believe and accept, uh, the feminists and secularists wouldn't, but presumably Steve Chalk and maybe the priest on the radio would, and others, of course, whom I haven't mentioned. Even if they do accept it as a doctrine, none of them has understood its implications. For why is the atonement not divine child abuse? Why is it not unjust? that God should send Jesus to die for our sins? Well, the answer is precisely in the doctrine of the Trinity, precisely because Jesus is also God. Jesus isn't an innocent third party. He is himself God, and it's therefore God who suffers and dies for us. Both the Father who sends and the Son who is sent are God, fully God, of one being with each other. Once we grasp that, 
the accusation of divine child abuse loses all traction. And that's just one example. But I think it's sufficient to demonstrate that these ideas, and specifically the doctrine of our Lord's divinity, or for that matter its denial, these ideas have consequences, both in the impact they have on the content of our faith and our own relationship with God, but also, I think you'll see, there's, there is an impact upon uh, evangelization as well. To the, uh, for the Arian vision of the gospel and the orthodox vision of it look very, very different, both to us inside the church and to outsiders. Most of those people I mentioned before would not say that they're Christians. What assumptions there are abroad about the gospel generally in the culture, in society, and how we explain it when we preach it and bear witness to it affect evangelization immensely. Okay? And this doctrine impinges on that directly. For, for far from being a tyrant or a sadistic parent, God loves us enough to become one with us, to take on our own nature for himself, and to die for us and at our own hands, and thereby to redeem us. This is what at heart the doctrine of Christ's divinity means. This is the gospel we have to bear witness to in our culture. It's a revelation, an extraordinary revelation, a glorious revelation of who God is. In Christ, we see God. To look into the eyes of Jesus Christ is, in Cardinal Schoenborn's memorable phrase, to see God's human face. To imitate him is to imitate God. To know him is to know God. To eat his flesh and drink his blood is, as St. Peter said, to become partakers of the divine nature. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Glenn Bolas. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org.au.